and you are to name to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered uh, Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, uh, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord, uh, that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Thank you, Thomas. Um, as we, it's Christmas time, so I'm, I'm <laughs> taking a break from Esther, right? <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous. We're gonna, we got a couple of Christmas sermons. And one of the things that uh, I, I enjoy, I, I love the, this, this season, I love what it's about, and, and I know that you've probably heard 8 million Christmas messages in your lifetime. And so what I struggle with, but what I really work towards is trying to come up with Christmas messages that look at things from a little bit of a different angle and, and, and kind of figure out how, what they can mean to us personally, not just about the, the reason for Christmas, God sending his son, which obviously that's the most important thing, but how does that affect us personally? How do, where do we go with some of these ideas and some of these thoughts that we can get? So in this passage, I think there's some pretty key things that we can look at as we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, because the first thing I want you to see is she's gotten a message. And so what I want to talk about is what is the message, all right? What, what has, because that message for her is also a message for us. So what is the message? And so when we talk about what is the message, it is there is a gift. I mean, this is the gift-giving season. That's what it's based on. There is a gift, right? And he is a person. It's a different kind of gift. And, and we see that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So we the angels are announcing there is this gift, this incredible thing, and it's a person, but it's an incredibly special person. And, and I, I love, Mary has a wonderful response to this. It's, it's not in this passage, it's later. It starts in verse 46, if you ever want to go, go read it. It's called the Magnificat. It, it, it is where she expresses this joy and, and rapture at being the mother of Jesus, when she begins to, to work through it and understand all the implications of it, she, she sings this song, the Magnificat. But you know what? Here's the thing to remember. That's later. That's not right now. All right? So, so Elizabeth, I think, is getting the implications of what's going on, maybe even quicker than Mary is. In verse 43, it says, But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now, it's interesting. She uses the word Lord twice there. And, and it's very interesting because it's important. Because she's, what, it, what happened? What happened? The angels came and gave this message that was from God. All right? This message is from God. And so in verse 45, she said, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord, what God has said to her. What the Lord has said to her. But then, you notice verse 43, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord, same Lord, we haven't changed, it's the same Lord here. And so Elizabeth is beginning to put this together. Elizabeth is saying, God spoke to you and this baby is God. And this is an incredible thing that she realizes this baby is the Lord. And, and, and so Elizabeth is telling us, and she's telling Mary, I think she's telling Mary, this is so important for Mary, she's saying, the God who spoke to you is the God who's in your womb. He's every bit as holy as our, the Father in heaven. Now, this is really the raw material, this here and in other places in the Gospels, that forced the early church into the doctrine of the Trinity. One God in three persons, all absolutely equal in deity. Because she's already beginning to say that. Elizabeth is saying that. The God who spoke to you is the God who's in your womb. And so Elizabeth shows us that Christmas is making claims that are just category shattering. And I think, I know we know this story. So it's not as shattering to us. It's not as like, we don't sit there and go, man, this is so incredible. But the infinite has become finite. The immortal has become mortal. The omnipotent has literally become impotent. Jesus, the creator of the universe, became a single cell, the most weak and small version of life in the universe. The ideal became real. Supernatural became natural. The metaphysical became physical. The invulnerable became vulnerable. The holy Something that's totally other, becomes something we can hold, something we can hug, something we can grasp. The impossible became possible. So first thing, Mary gets a message and that there's a gift and this gift is a person. The second thing is this gift will change your life. See, God didn't just give us his son, he gave us truth. He gave us the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And truth changes you. And that's why she says, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. That's an interesting phrase here. Because what is Elizabeth teaching us for us, not just for Mary? She's telling Mary something, but for us. She's telling us this, you believe this truth, it will change you. It will change you. You will become blessed. Now this blessed word is a word that we, you know, we've watered it down. To the Jews, it was the idea of God bringing you to full, full shalom. The idea that you've reached some, a, a kind of a completeness. You're functioning, full functioning. To be blessed is to be everything God made you to be. It means, to be blessed means to be strengthened and repaired in your human capacity. Psychological, sociological, cultural, to be transformed and to Mary, and to us, what is happening. If you believe this, it will transform you. It will change you. 
And so we have a message. There's a gift. He's a person. We have this gift that will change your life. Now, there's implications here that we need to think about for ourselves. Just to take this and apply it in a, in a real world, right now kind of a way. First of all, I, I, I entitled it, I wasn't sure how to say it, vulnerabil- vulnerab- Vulnerability for Intimacy. See, I should not have written it that way. I can't even say it. All relationships, all relationships, whether it's personal people, whether it's groups, whether it's at work, whether it's nations, there's a time when one thinks that the other is wrong and one thinks they're right. And we get things like this, and it can, it can be nations or we can reduce it down to one-on-one relationship, husbands and wives, whatever. You're to blame. No, you're to blame. Back and forth. No, you are. No, you're. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. And neither side will take the blame or make concession because they're both convinced they're absolutely right. And so what happens? Both get centered on attacking the other and defending from their attack. And I, and I, I know sometimes for me, I... Uh, I think this ties in. I, I place a high value, maybe too high sometimes. I, I really want to be right on things. And, and, and for one, it's a good thing. I really want to be right when I teach Scripture. I do not want to teach something that's wrong. I want to investigate it and make sure, as best as I can tell, I'm right. And, and then that carries over into other parts of my life. I can remember one time in high school in a debate class, and uh, we were going to debate something, and the guy offered up one thing that all of us agreed with, and he offered up something else that no one agreed with. And I was like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. Nobody believes that. And then fight for it as hard as I can. And I, I enjoyed that. I love the back and forth, the intellectual pulling and, and, and pushing. But I knew I was wrong from the get-go. And sometimes with my wife, I'll, we'll be talking about something, and all of a sudden it'll dawn on me, she's right. She's right. I'm wrong. And so immediately what I do is I say, you're wrong. I'm telling you. You're wrong. I, I keep, sometimes I keep fighting. Why do I do that? I don't know why I do that. I keep fighting for a position that I've already know I've lost. I've, you know, I think of Star I've lost the high ground, right? But I keep fighting. Why do I do that? And so sometimes at some point, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. People argue. And then one person says, you know what? You're right. No, you're wrong. What? And suddenly someone lets down their defenses. And someone is willing to take blame. And I'll tell you, sometimes when that happens, the other person just keeps piling on. Oh, well, I'm glad you finally realized how wrong you are and how right you are. But if you keep it up, the healing will begin. Because someone drops defense, defenses. Now, I know, I know in any kind of a discussion, in any kind of an argument, in any kind of a situation, it's never a 50-50 deal. I talk to people sometimes, they go, it's not 50-50. I say, okay, what is it? Is it 60-40? No. 70-30? No. 80-20? Yeah, it's probably about 80-20. Okay, so take 20% of the blame. Start taking some of the blame and let down your defenses. Because it's never 100% one person's fault. So take 20% and admit it and say, okay, you're right. I'm wrong about this. I'll take this blame. And even if the person keeps piling on, at some point restoration can begin and relationships can get better. And anger and yelling and misunderstanding will continue until one person decides, I want that person back. And the only way to do it is to let down my guard, take my shield off, and allow some of these verbal blows to land and to say, yes, I'm wrong. 
And that can really work. It doesn't always work. But it works a lot of the time. Because what you're doing is kind of analogous to this costly act of redemption for a relationship. Because God is the ultimate example of letting his defenses down. He became a baby. It's interesting. No other religion even claims this. Secularism basically says there's no miracles, so this can't be true. In Islam and in Judaism, it's basically blasphemy to say that God could become a baby, that God could become human. That's blasphemy. It's impossible. Other, this, this, this is just an impossibility. In Christianity, God became fragile. He became breakable. He became someone who could be hurt. Why? To get us back. To love us. Jesus Christ became fragile and breakable, and he died on a cross for our sins and will, and will reconcile to himself anyone who is willing to admit that they need that extreme of a salvation. And that's why he did it. That's why he let down his defenses, to have intimacy with us. And so when we look at this, there's a vulnerability for intimacy. And when we grasp that, when we see the honor and the affirmation in that, he did that for me. Jesus did that for me. That's an amazing thought. He did it for me. We say he died for the sins of the whole world, but you know what? He died for me personally. And I don't know how that works, but he thought of me on the cross. And he thought of you on the cross. And when you realize how affirming that is, the God of the universe was thinking of you, was doing this for you, that's incredibly affirming. That's incredibly honoring. So then when you're in relationships with other people, you can let your defenses down at times when your honor is offended because you have this this supernatural honor that can't be taken. And so implications, there's a vulnerability for intimacy. Implications, there in here is a comfort for suffering. Because what does Christmas tell us? We have a resource now. Christmas teaches us God is not remote. He's intimately involved in our lives. And and we talk about this a lot, but this is so important for us. He's intimately involved in our lives because he knows how it feels. What you're struggling with, he knows how that feels. What you're dealing with, he knows how that feels. He knows what it is to suffer. And he didn't stop it, even though he could have. And in our lives, he knows what it's like, our suffering is like. And he doesn't always stop it, even though he could. But he walks through it with us. He's always there with us. And so we have a comfort for suffering. Another one I think that's an implication here is a passion for justice. What else does Christmas tell us? God had a body. Eastern religions say the physical is an illusion. Greeks and Romans thought the physical body was bad, it was evil. In Judaism and Islam, to say that God had a body is blasphemy. And so God is not just concerned with the spiritual. He had a body. The physical becomes important to him also. Because he experienced it. He took on a body like ours. He knows poverty. He was an immigrant in Egypt. He was persecuted. He was lynched. He knows death. Our redemption involves body and spirit. 
because this is important to him. He took on a body. And so to go around preaching salvation but not alleviating physical needs is, is to miss the point. They need to go hand in hand because one without the other loses the message of Christmas. The fourth implication here is humility and relationships. Now, it's hard for us to understand how incredible this, we talk about this all the time, and this is one of the things you guys know. I love history, and I love to do this. I love to figure out, okay, what's going on in the culture? How do they think culturally so that it helps us understand how things are taught and what is said? The resurrection narratives and the birth narratives of Jesus are incredibly woman-centric. The resurrection, you know, you think about this. Whose job is it to make sure the world knows the good news? Mary Magdalene, a formal men, former mental patient. She's the one. The world, people learn it from her in the incarnation. How does this come about? What? Through, for us, for shepherds. Is there a televised event in Times Square? No. No, it's just a poor, unwed Jewish girl and her cousin Elizabeth. And in a society where women had very marginal status, God used women. So there's a principle here. Oftentimes, God deliberately works through the people that the world despises. We cannot understand fully the reaction of the Jews to the parable of the Good Samaritan because they hated the Good Samaritan. It would be, I'm just trying, I like the parable of the ISIS terrorist. We would recoil at that thought. And Jesus oftentimes works through the people that the world despises. And so what does that mean? Humility in relationships with other people. Christmas is the end of being an elite, of elitism. It's the end of looking down on anyone and we can all struggle with looking down on someone. It happens. It's just the way things are for us most of the time. If you take a really strong stand on something, there's a tendency to someone who takes a strong stand on the other side to think less of them, to think they're, they're, they're defective somehow, they're, their thinking is defective, that they're ignorant, that they're stupid, that they're evil. This is the basis of racism. And then what happens if you say, I'm not a racist. I hate those people that are racist. What's happened? Now I think, th I look down on them. I feel, uh, they're evil. Now there may be evil involved in that. And in some ways, I think, I don't even have the right to be talking about that. But I see it all the time. I see it, this is what's going on in our political situation. If you're on the right, those people on the left are evil. If you're on the left, those people on the right are ignorant and stupid That can't be true for us. As Christians, we cannot do that. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in these political systems. We are citizens of heaven. And Christianity should be the end of that. Martin Luther said, we need to see Christ in the people we tend to despise. The race you tend to despise, the class of people you tend to despise, the political party you tend to despise, the religion you tend to despise. Christmas ends this because God came to us. We did not rise through our ability and through our good works to reach him. We have no grounds for self-righteousness. And so Christmas says, there's, I can't look down on people. I can't be a snob. I can't be an elite. I can't judge others in that way. Not anymore, not because of Christmas. 
It's interesting too. Christmas sometimes addresses the things that we don't even see. You know, we talk about vulnerability for intimacy, and you may realize that intimacy in relationships is something you need to help with, and it addresses that. Comfort for suffering. Maybe you're suffering and you need comfort, suffering in relationships, suffering physically, suffering in, in many different ways, and, and you see that. Maybe you realize you need to be more passionate for justice in this world. But I don't think anybody came here today and said, man, I hope Bob is going to nail prejudice and snobbery today because this is a big need in my life. No, it's a need that we often totally overlook and don't even think about. And Christmas addresses that. And so we have this message that's given to Mary. What is the gift? Who we're given? What we're given? I just want you to see now Mary's response. The first thing it says is hard thinking. This is a passage a little hard to translate. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. All right? And, and it says, when it, when it says, um, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What does Mary say? You know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of certain people, liberals, who don't believe this, they will say, oh, this was written like 100 years later, 150 years later, maybe even 200 years later, and it was written to try to keep the, this church growing. We need to get it under control. We need to have a coherent story for the whole church to follow. If you want to elevate someone like Mary, the mother of God, you don't make her first response to be like, man, I'm troubled with this. I'm troubled with this. My, my, you, you'd make the first response saying, oh, yes, I'm highly favored. I'm honored. You know, it's like, it's like in the King James, it says, Hail Mary. You know, they're going to name a football play after you and say, yes, that's what I want. I want, you know, I'm, I'm this great. That's a stupid joke. Yeah. But what does it say? Look at verse 29. She was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this could be. Now, that word for troubled means to struggle with something, to feel like this can't be true, and to struggle with it because it, it rocks you. It agitates, it disturbs you. If you literally translate it, it means, ah, just like that. And then the word for, for wondered is, is, is an interesting word. It's uh, dialogizomai. It's, it's kind of where we get dialogue and logic. Those two things kind of come out of that. And it's this idea of trying to rationally think through something that is giving you all this problem. And it's the idea of going back and forth. Well, it could be, the, well, that's ridiculous. This never happened. You know, and just to go back and forth and back and forth and really struggle with it. And so what do we have here? We have Mary... The mother of Jesus, and what is she saying? I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if I believe this. She's analyzing, what does this mean? She's working it through her worldview and through her grid. She's thinking, is this a dream? Did I have pizza with bad pepperoni last night? Is this real? Am I seeing things? If you want to write something to promote piety among the faithful, telling them that the mother of the founder of your religion doubted whether this was all true is not the way to start. You don't have the mother of the Lord saying, I'm not sure if I believe this. But you know what's happening? Mary is reacting exactly how you'd react in a similar situation. You know, lots of people say, oh, we're modern, and they were so primitive. They believe that kind of stuff. They're different. No, they're not. Mary's reacting just like you, you would. She's saying, I don't know if I believe this. People back then knew how babies came. 
They knew how that worked. This isn't news. It's not like Mary going, oh, I, I, I just thought all babies just miraculously appeared. No. Yeah. They didn't have a stork idea going on back then. She knew this is weird. I can't believe this. This is totally outside of my comfort zone. I don't want to believe this. And she's working through it. It tells us, it tells us she's furiously working through it. He's using strong, Luke is using strong words here. Because <clears throat> she's trying to say, how do I account for this? Angels and visions are not a part of my life. It's not a part of my worldview. And so it, it, it leads us to this whole idea of, then how do you account for the fact? I mean, you think about this. How do you account for the fact that Mary and these early Christians believed that God had become flesh and was this, was that we're supposed to worship him. We're supposed to worship a human being. It didn't come out of Greek or Roman thinking because we said, said that. They think physical and, the, and matter is bad. They didn't come out of Eastern religion. They think that matter in the physical world is this illusion and it will all pass away. It didn't come from the Jews because they considered it blasphemy to even think that there could be a son of God. So it's not coming out of any culture or religion. It's like a bolt of lightning out of a clear blue sky. It just hit. And what happened to these people that would make them go against their culture, go against their families, go against their religion? And what made any of them believe that anyone would believe them if it was diametrically opposed to everything they had believed? C.S. Lewis, when he came to Christ, he said, one of the reasons I believe is that no one is brilliant enough or crazy enough to thought this up, because it doesn't sound reasonable. So I want you to see something here when we talk about this. Mary's response is hard thinking. I want you to see faith is more than thinking, but not less than thinking. Reason and logic have to be a part of your faith, but not all of your faith. So faith is more than thinking, but not less. Second thing I want you to see, and we see this, we've already kind of brought it up, there's honest doubting. Mary's first response is not, yes, Lord, sounds like a great plan. Her first response is, how can this be? She speaks to her and she thinks, I'm hallucinating. And so he explains more and she says, how can this be? She says, this is impossible. This whole, you talking to me is impossible. What you're telling me is impossible. It cannot happen. She's doubting. I love this. I love that it's so honest about that. She's struggling with doubts. And what does God say? Does he say, Mary, you better get your act together and stop doubting me. Or, you know, he, no, no, there's no condemnation for doubting. It just says in verse 37, for nothing's impossible with God. She asks a question. The angel responds, but it, if you notice, that's not the answer to the question. That's not, that's, does it, she's asking, how is this going to work? I don't know if I believe you. I don't think this is possible. I'm still a virgin. How's a baby? I know how this stuff works, okay? I took, I took, you know, I took sex ed in high school. I know this stuff, Right? And she gets this answer that's not totally an answer, but there's enough information there to make a decision. And I love it. I love this verse. There's nothing impossible with God. We get that verse because Mary doubted. We get blessed with that verse because Mary had doubts. 
And the angel said, there's nothing impossible with God. All right? So Mary's response, hard thinking, honest doubting. And then there's community. She goes to tell Elizabeth. And the great song of Mary comes after processing this with Elizabeth. She goes and spends time with someone. And I'm not going to spend a long time here, but she, she, this is where doubts and questions can be dealt with. When we're struggling in community, talking to people. The fourth one, hard thinking, honest doubting, community, and then sincere surrender. What does she say? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. She's saying, I don't understand this. I don't see how this could happen. This seems impossible. Nothing's impossible to God. Okay, God. I'm going to start going this way then. I think for a lot of us, there are times this happens in our life. We can't see exactly what's going to happen. We have, we have ideas of what's going to happen. And we just say, okay, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I don't know exactly where this is to go. She doesn't know a lot. She knows a few things, right? She knows this. She knows what happens to women who have babies before they're married. She knows what communities do to those women. She knows what will happen. She, she knows all her plans for life just, just went down the toilet. To, 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 to be married, to have a happy, normal life, to, to, to worship and honor God and have children and all that. She goes, that's all going to go. Now her life is going to be clouded with accusations. Her life is going to be clouded with whispers. Every one of her kids, when they walk down the street, there's going to be people going, oh, yeah. that's going to be their life. That's going to be their life because she's going to be a woman with a stained reputation for the rest of her life. She's probably pretty sure at this point that Joseph's going to divorce her because who's going to believe this, you know? How's he going to believe when she tells him this? And she goes, well, God told me nothing's impossible. And so she knows a little bit. She doesn't know everything, but she knows, she knows enough and we see it, you know, we've talked about this sometimes. We see, we see the things that are said. The Jews say to Jesus, come on, you're a half-breed. We all know it. We all know it. What is that? When they called him a Samaritan, what are they calling him? Your mother's Jewish. Your father is probably a Gentile, probably a Roman soldier. Your mother's probably a prostitute. Those are the things that happen. But also what, what happens too, Jesus and John, Jesus, they bring a woman to him with an incredibly stained reputation, caught in the act, and he shows grace because he's been there. So she has this surrender. I'm the Lord's servant. May be to you to me as you have said. And there's an interesting thing about this birth that mentions in here. The parents, the parents are not allowed to name the child. They are told what his name will be. Now, why do parents get to name their children? Because they're in charge, right? They're older, and they're in charge. My wife and I went back and forth at times um, on, the, on the names as we considered names for our children. We, our first son, we both agreed on Derek, but I pushed for, uh, I pushed for the spelling we have is D-E-R-E-K, 
not the other spelling with I-C-K, and that's just because um, I played hockey at the time, and my biggest hero was a guy named, uh, I played hockey earlier, my biggest hero was a guy named Derek Sanderson, who was a forward for the Boston Bruins, and he spelled his name D-E-R-E-K, so that settled it for me. In fact, a number of our kids' names were spelled because of reasons like that, which is pretty silly when you think about it, but it's worked out so far. So what happened? They're told, you don't get to name this child. Here's the name of your child. This angel is telling her from the get-go, giving her kind of a clue from the get-go, you don't manage him, he's going to manage you. Many people say, I would like to believe. I'd like to believe, but there's a few things that I really struggle with. Or I'd like to believe, but does that mean I have to give this up or give that up? Or whatever. What, what's happening in that situation? They're trying to manage God. I know that feeling. I try to do that sometimes. I struggle with that sometimes. I try to manage God. And God says, I will not be managed by you. So oftentimes with people, I say, listen, let's, let's figure out what the basics are and work with them. And then as we broaden out, you can deal with all those other issues. But they really are side issues compared to the biggest issues. I don't want to try to make God fit my preconceived notions. That's not a relationship. What is that? When we do that, I'd like to believe, but oh, I'm not sure about that. Or do I have to give up? What is that? That's cost-benefit analysis. That's what that is. It's not a relationship. It's saying, uh, you know, I, I, I want God, I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I want to be in charge, and it just doesn't work that way. At some point, we have to realize we may not understand or know what following Christ will bring. We have a God who submitted himself to us. He gave up everything to reach us. And so now he asks us to do the same thing. And this is a part of what Christmas is all about. It's this gift. The gift is a person. The gift is a relationship. And our response should be hard-thinking, Our response should be really thinking it through, analyzing, thinking, because faith involves thinking. It's not all thinking, but it does involve thinking. Mary's response is honest doubting, and God doesn't condemn her for doubting. Response is something that needs to be developed in community, and ultimately it leads to a sincere surrender of saying, okay, may it be to me as you have said, Lord, I'll follow you no matter where I go. And I can't help but think, I mean, I think about this. Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's saying, God, anything but this. Please, I don't want this to happen to me. And then he finishes with, basically he says, may it be to me as you have said. Your will, not mine. He learned that from his mother. From his mother. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. This Christmas, think about that. Think about that. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. What does that involve? What does that involve? Well, for some of you, it may involve coming and serving some children whose parents, at least one of their parents, is in prison. And we're throwing a party for those kids tonight. How many times do you think they get a party? And how many times do they miss out? I'm telling you this, mostly they miss out. But tonight, here 
it's for them. They're the stars. They're the object of it. They're the ones that are the most important. If none of those kids came, we wouldn't be having this party. So they're the ones this is for. And we encourage you to bring your kids. Bring your kids, teaching them, look, you are so blessed. Now let's bless someone. Also, remind your kids they're not getting a present tonight. That is also something that occasionally causes a little bit of a problem when kids start walking up and go, what about me? And they're like, no. So remind them of that. For some of you, okay, saying, I'm the Lord's servant. What does that involve? It may be reaching out to a neighbor. It may be signing up for port and reaching out to some homeless people and, and, and making their lives better for one day. It may be it's a million different things. Each one of us can do some thinking about how does God want me to express that this time of year, this time of year. And I'm telling you, how can I drag my kids into it and help them see that it's about more than just them? This is what we learned from Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Mary, that it's honest, that we see. We see doubting. We see struggling. We see unbelief, and yet we see you asking us to trust you. So, Father, give us wisdom. Help us to struggle with the things that are most important, and help us to change and be different because of it. And we will be quick to give you the praise because you are a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. And uh, I want to mention, if, if, if you're our guest here, you're visiting, you, we don't want you to feel pressured to give. This is what our regular attenders and our members do as a part of their worship.